Hello and welcome to another episode of WMQ&A, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we've got the first in what we hope is a series of creator interviews. I'm joined by writer Magdalene Visaggio, who talks about her upcoming DC series Eternity Girl, her love of classic science fiction, and a story I probably should have asked more questions about regarding a replica human skull. Let us know what you think of the episode on our Facebook and Twitter pages, and make sure you check out Magdalene's work at DC, IDW, Black Mask, Oni, and elsewhere. Now here's the interview. Magdalene, thank you for doing the podcast. I'm glad to be here. Thank you for having me. All right. Uh, so last year, you were part of the DC Writers Workshop class, and now you're launching your own Big Two series with, with a new character, Eternity Girl, under Gerard Way's Young Animal imprint. Uh, where do you feel like you're falling on the scale between, you know, pin- pinch me, I'm dreaming, and damn it, I earn this? It still feels super unreal, but the um, the process of simply getting it through was like so lengthy um, that by the time, like, everything kind of like uh, we got the go ahead on it. Um, it had just been such like a long process that it was most of my, most of my emotion was just cool. We're finally getting to do this. Um, and since then I've just kind of really been in work mode. Mm-hmm. And so it's, uh, it's, it's hard to step back. I think it'll be different once I've got the book in my hands. Cause right now it's just like doing, you know, writing jobs. Um, mm-hmm. But I guess we'll just have to see what happens when the book comes out because I think that's going to be the, the 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 thing that really makes me feel really weird <clears throat> is you know performing so to speak for that big an audience. Mm. Uh, tell me a little bit about uh, Eternity Girl, uh, which you're writing with uh, Sunny Lou. What's what's sort of the elevator pitch for the book? Um, what if you were an immortal elemental super being who no longer had the will to live? Like okay. you're immortal, but you can't die. So what do mm. you do? Um, and so in the first issue, someone comes to our main character and says, uh, I know how you could die. You could help me destroy the universe. And then she's like, all right, cool. That sounds, that sounds great. And uh, then it's just a, their quest to destroy the universe. And this has been uh, a backup strip in the ongoing uh, Milk Wars crossover, the JLA Doom Patrol Milk Wars crossover. Um, you know how how much of how much of a peek into Eternity Girl are are we going to get before you know we launch in, into the ongoing? Well, the um the the backups, the stingers, is what we what we've been calling them editorially um, on our end are um, thematically introducing some of the big the very like big picture ideas behind Eternity Girl, um, but you're not really getting a look at what the story is. We're laying some narrative groundwork uh, over the course of these shorts. The big thing that we're introducing and people are starting to pick up on it is that Eternity Girl is going to deal really heavily with the idea of um, what's it like to be on the other end of a reboot? You know, not the reader. What's it like to be Mm -hmm. rebooted? What's it like to be rebooted again and again and again and again? Um, So there's, there's some sort of like comics, metatextual, not metatextual, but like, just kind of like some comics meta stuff going on. Like it's, it's uh, playing with not necessarily comics storytelling tropes in a lot of ways, as much as it's playing with um, <clears throat> the conventions of comics as a medium to an extent and trying to draw a very real emotional story out of that. That sounds, that sounds perfect for young animals. Yeah, I think so. I think that's why Gerard went for it. It's uh it was weird. I wasn't expecting to get to be able to pitch it. Um, I'd gotten to do an, uh, an element girl short with them um, at the end of 2016. 
And mm-hmm. that was my first big to work of any kind. And that was like mind blowing. Um, and my editor at the time was Jamie Rich, who uh, has sons left young animal. Um, and he was really impressed with the short. And so I was kind of like on an off chance. I just said, Hey, I, I actually have like an idea if you would want to hear about it. And so he let me put together a pitch um, and Gerard went for it. And like normally pitches aren't really taken by young animal. They really just develop things in house out of existing property. So it was kind of like this weird off the beaten path approach um, to how they usually operate. Uh, that's fantastic. It seems like DC on the whole is really pushing, you know, new characters between this and everything that's coming out of the new age of heroes. So it's, oh, I'm so excited about the new nice. age of heroes. I've got the terrifics on my sub list. I, I think we all do it. I mean, we're all <laughs> cankering for an FF book. And if Marvel's not going to give it to us, I'm pretty glad DC is. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, plus metal's been, plus metal's been fantastic. Yeah, so. I know. Oh man. We got, I got um, the opportunity. Well, actually, let me ask you at this point. I'm I, just, sorry, I go got ahead. the, we got the opportunity to like in the workshop, Scott Snyder was teaching it. And this was right when, right before metal uh, number one dropped. And he sort of like walked us through the first issue and how we structured it. And um, in one of our introductory classes, it was a really, really interesting experience. And we got a fun sneak peek at what was going to be the hottest book of the year. <laughs> that is awesome. Um, you know, while we are talking about other people's books, what are you reading? You know, uh, when you do have time. Um, to my pull list is like 35 books long. Um, I've decided to start like reading more tent pole books because I've always kind of been a, um, the sort of reader who likes those books for, that, that don't really touch any of the rest of the universe because I like like that standalone story. Um, <clears throat> but I figure, you know, I'm doing more and more stuff at DC. You know, I got the workshop. I'm in, I'm in young animal and it's like, okay, well, I should probably start reading. DC's tentpole books. So I started picking up, you know, Batman, Superman, I mean, action comics and Wonder Woman. Um, mm-hmm. I'm reading everything Young Animal's putting out because they're doing fantastic work. I'm really loving uh, Ice Cream Man. I don't know if you've been reading that. Uh, I haven't been reading that. It's like this weird ass anthology. Yeah, it's this weird ass like horror anthology kind of thing. It's interesting. And mm-hmm. I don't know how successful it, it is at what it's trying to do. But it's trying to do something nobody else is trying to do, and major props to that. And I'm really eager to see where they're going. Um, there are only what one issue in at this point, or if there's a second issue, I haven't grabbed it yet. <clears throat> but yeah, it's a, it's it. really inventive. I just feel like in the first issue, they're kind of running up against the limits of their page count, probably more than anything else. Um, <clears throat> and I'm not sure if the if the high concept, because there clearly is one, is getting out there. But I think, but I'm really enjoying what they're doing. Um, I'm reading Saga because everyone's reading Saga. Um, I'm reading Paper Girls because everyone's reading Paper <laughs> Girls. Um, Spider-Man, Wicked and Divine. Um, I'm really liking Twisted Romance. Um, that's another book that I feel like is just doing shit nobody else is doing. I really like their their um, sort of multimedia genre, I mean, uh, anthology approach. So. Yeah, I like the, I like the mix of sequential <laughs> art and prose. I read yeah, the first it's issue. Fantastic work and Nothing to be surprised if you know the people involved. Um, you know, Alex and Megan especially are, are two of the best writers I've ever had the privilege to read. Um, I mean, that's, that's mostly it at this point. Um, I'm not just going to like go through like my whole list. But uh, No, 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 no. You, you said yeah, yourself 35 uh, books. <laughs> it's a lot. And I'm actually not even great at getting to all of them. I have like my to-read piles getting a little ridiculous under there. I'm also... 
been finally checking out Morrison's run on Doom Patrol because I'd never actually read that. <clears throat> and that's a, that's like a really fun bonkers book, which I'm sure everybody but me already knew. Um, getting back to your own writing, uh, sci-fi is is a huge element of it from you know your Black Mask stuff to obviously Rick and Morty to Eternity Girl. Um, does that match the kind of stuff that you were consuming yeah, growing up? Yeah, growing up it was pretty much sci-fi exclusively. I didn't really... I mean, other than like, you know, your sitcoms and stuff, they weren't doing too much space travel in Full House. Um, I mean, you had Alf. That was, was before my time. <laughs> Alf is the late 80s. Ah. I was born in 84, so I kind of missed Alf. Um, like, and I do know there was that weird little glut of sci-fi sitcoms in the late 80s. And then again, there were these weird set of fantasy sitcoms in the late 90s. That's just always great. But I grew up on like Star Trek and my dad always yeah. like you know, would give me, you know, sci-fi novels he picked up at truck stops after, you know, he was done with them. Um, and, you know, I was just reading shitloads of comics. And what's comics if nothing but science fiction and fantasy? Um, any particular authors that were your favorite? Um, I've actually been kind of having a big reckoning with that because it was really Orson Card. Um, yeah. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. I've done, a, I've done a, a few just kind of like just me thinking out loud threads about it lately on Twitter. But he's... um his fiction like was really affecting in a lot of ways. And I sort of had to do this like critical reappraisal of it. That's sort of been this ongoing thing as like, I, we've sort of gotten a, a bigger and bigger picture of what sort of person he is. And yeah, I don't know if I can go back and read my favorite books ever again, because just cause I know them backwards and forwards and just like knowing them, I can't help but see a lot of the, uh, the really, really bad ideas in them and um mm -hmm. i i just i just don't know about it and that, that really kills me because like it wasn't even just the ender books although i think the ender court the ender quartet was absolutely formative for me and um really helped like help me form my moral code you know like its whole emphasis on like radical empathy um and the sort of like the uncritical love of the other person through through understanding i thought was mm -hmm. was really cool <clears throat> um and has has uh done a lot for me over the years but man i just don't even know um he almost ended up on superman a few years ago yeah he almost that ended up on superman nuts. a few years ago. and i would have been thrilled at the time because I, I hadn't like put it started putting everything together yet and i didn't really know too much about his stuff outside of his novels but like man so much of his sure. river meant so much to me and i just have such a hard time not seeing the bad in it anymore, <clears throat> which is just really troubling. There aren't a ton of other <clears throat> writers who really stuck with me in a huge way in anywhere near that huge way from when I was a kid. Um, everything else I just kind of read in passing, you know, like I read a lot of Heinlein. I read a lot of mm -hmm. Arthur Clarke, but like that stuff was either a little over my head or just kind of boring. Um, <clears throat> I read the masters. I read Asimov, you know, um, I read Silverberg and it was like, it was good stuff, but it's like, everything was super, everything felt like, 40s and 50s and there wasn't a lot of stuff that really felt contemporary to me that i had ready access to or knowledge of at the time sure um sure so orson carb was like that was he was kind of the be all end all for me when i was little that's a that's a rough thing to deal with um when you're when you're writing you know your own sci-fi stories how much do you, do you dedicate any time to researching you know, actual theoretical science, like for example, with quantum teens or go, which 
obviously it was about two teens trying to unlock the secret to time travel. You know, did did you brush up on tachyons at all or anything like that? Or is it just, you know, at, the, at this um, point? No, I definitely did. For, for, for um, something like Kim and Kim, I just make shit up. Um, quantum teens, I wanted to feel rooted in the real world. And even though I don't actually understand this stuff, I mm-hmm. have that kind of pop sci-fi understanding a lot of things of a lot of things. So nothing nothing that's like hard to pick up, just stuff that like if you're if you're mildly interested in this kind of thing, stuff that you'll like retain if you should like interstellar and, and shit like that. Um, <clears throat> mm-hmm. And so I knew enough to know where to look. And I did a little bit of just kind of like skimming on Wikipedia to just get a sense of what the big ideas were because the story was never gonna be about the science um it's it's quantum teens argo not right. quantum sciences go it's about the teens uh so i did a lot of i mean not a lot of i did i did you know some sort of criteria reading and uh just enough to to get like a big super big picture idea of how stuff is kind of supposed to fit together and um not actually that much of it made it into the book to be honest, like there's a few specific things, like I mentioned, um, like uh, there's a component <clears throat> that they use early on called an Einstein Rosen put mm-hmm. incipient, which is just something I really that's based yes. on something I just I learned off um, sliders when I was a kid about the there was the technical name for the wormhole, mm-hmm. um, and there's a scene in issue three where mm-hmm. where just where uh, Zero is describing the function of like this little miniature Stargate they've been building. And that was actually based mm-hmm. on like wormhole physics, such as I understand them, but you know, condensed into three sentences in a single panel. You put out a Twitter thread not too long ago, uh, explaining to readers how they could, you know, ensure they'd get their hands on a, on a physical copy uh, of Attorney Girl. It was sort of like an "I'm just a bill" guide to the direct market. Do, um, you know, as far as pre-ordering and everything like that. Do you ever think about what comics marketing must look like to an outside observer? Like, I've been kind of thinking about this. Like, Bryce Dallas Howard isn't doing commercials telling cinephiles to go to the multiplex to demand it carry you know, Jurassic World 2. Yeah. Um, um, I don't think it looks like anything because I don't think anybody has an idea what comics do yeah. to market themselves. Um, and to be honest, comics could be doing a lot better to market itself. It, it feels like a lot, think, of, a lot of the onus is on the creators, really. But most of it, it, most of it is. And I mean, I know that like the comics business is pretty anemic right now. Um, that's no secret. And it's hard because like you have to allocate extremely limited resources to an audience that can only get their books from a very specific point of contact. Um, you know, like the, the comics market simply isn't big. And that's like the key difference. Like the comics market isn't big enough. Bryce Dallas Howard doesn't have to ask people to, you know, demand a second Jurassic world movie. She can just like be Bryce Dallas Howard because there's a whole marketing team that's trying to get millions of people to see this movie. Like with us, we're, we're, you know, working in numbers in the thousands to try to maintain these things. Um, and so the, the problem is that when you're marketing at that level, it looks really different. And I feel like people don't understand that it's not the same kind of thing. And I mean that at kind of kind of every level. You know, there's a lot of people who, you know, when they think about marketing, they think about commercials. I'm like, well, we can't afford a commercial, so we are not going to do anything. We might do some like retailer outreach, but <clears throat> there's all kinds of like successful kinds of marketing that that. Um, 
function in the space that we've got, but no one's spending that much time decodifying, you know, sort of how this is supposed to operate. And it just gets more and more difficult as the comics market continues to contract. There's fewer and fewer resources. Um, I was looking through, you know, ever since Legacy, Marvel's been sort of, their, uh, their house heads have gotten sort of louder and flashier, I feel like. And one day I was reading one of their books and I'm looking at like, you know, ads for like five different books. And I'm like, you know, it's quite likely that people reading this book already know these books exist. You know, isn't the idea to try to bring in people who don't know these books exist? Well, here's, you would think so. Here's the thing. Mm-hmm. Um, have you ever done any marketing at all? Uh, not personally, no, I haven't. Okay, so I used to, I used to, I'm in PR now, and I used to work in marketing. the mm-hmm. The customer that you have is more valuable than the customer that you like. Don't like you. You don't have to spend as much to get someone to buy more as you do to get someone to buy something at all. And so, what we're looking at there is like that's that's smart because that's called upselling. Like I'm already interested in Batman or whatever, mm-hmm. and then. I'm reading Batman and they, I flip to the page. We're talking about the DC's new age of heroes. <clears throat> Whether I'm a cat, if I'm a casual reader and I've never heard of that, <clears throat> excuse me, or I'm, you know, a Wednesday warrior. and I know all about it. It's that's good information for me because it reminds me that that's a thing I'm interested in or lets me know that's a thing that I might be interested in based on my existing interest in the book I'm already reading. So that's smart. <clears throat> the hard part is getting people in the stores and the reason that's hard is because most people don't fucking go into comic book shops if they're not already interested in comic books. You know, like if you don't already want to read Batman, you're not walking into the store to buy Batman. No one's like wandering into a comic book store just to like, eh, I saw it here. I thought I'd check it out see what you got. You know, like you don't see that very often. You're, um, it's not like a window shopper industry um, mm-hmm. because public consciousness of it's pretty low. When I tell people that I write comic books professionally, they tell me, People still make comic books. I've gotten that comment. There's some people who are surprised that comic books exist, which is, cra- so, which is crazy. Especially, especially when you know all the movies now are just adaptations of comics. Yeah, but everyone knows that. You know, like they used to be comic book characters, but well, we've got the movies and TV now. Why we still have the comics? I've, I mean, I see people who just kind of make that leap. Um, yeah. And the other thing is that, like. People don't need to go to comics to get Captain America or Spider-Man. You can get Captain America and Spider-Man in totally manageable doses that don't demand your attention on a regular basis without buying a comic book. You know, like that's mm-hmm. the other side of this whole, of the, of this media thing. The movies aren't marketing for comics. The comics are, if anything, marketing for movies or like tie-in merchandise, it seems like a lot of the time, which is frustrating because I think comics can and should be so much more than that. But the problem is just like reminding people that comics are an option and absent some sort of like industry-wide like PR effort, like, you know, like like the milk council, people who are just there to tell you about milk. (laughs) <laughs> I don't. I don't know. Like, like you're not gonna know about milk, you know. But we all fucking know about Got Milk, the most the massively successful ad campaign. I don't know why we don't have something like that for comics. Something to just remind people that comics are an option that you can get them for free at your fucking library, you know. Absolutely. So mm-hmm. that's the problem. Is is uh, the problem of discovery because you, we've talked about this problem like a million times. So like nobody 
is stocking comics next to the cash register anymore. You know, there's yeah. no spinner rack. Um, it's, you're you're not seeing them. You don't even really see the Archie digests like no. checkout aisles anymore. No, you don't. And that means that comics, which made a tactical decision to retreat to hobby shops in the late '80s, you know, because of you know their own sales problems, they wanted the stability. It was a life raft. We just sort of built an industry on the foundation of this little life raft. And once you're on the life raft, there's no way to get the. There's it's very difficult. There's not no way, but so the problem is that once you're in the life raft, you um, it's hard to get. It's not impossible, but it's hard to get word out. You know that we have this whole industry built on it, and then once you even get into the store, the comics culture is so Byzantine and sometimes closed that it's difficult to even get in. Like you, um, we we put up so many barriers of entry to like test people's legitimacy. Like if you walk into, we so we all know the fears. We all know these stories of like yeah. of like the normie walking into the comic shop and expressing interest in comic and getting quizzed. You know, just by someone who wants to see if they're a real fan. Like, that's the culture that we've built. I, yeah, and, and I think the insularity you know? of the direct market also breeds the insularity of comics fandom. I, I, I you know, it's, it's a snake eating itself. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, the way I've described it is that I've, I've said that comics are a fringe medium because we have mm-hmm. insisted upon it. Yeah. And that's the problem, you know, and that's the problem is that we have to stop insisting upon it and... That's the current mess that the industry has right yeah, now. It's been that way for 35, 40 years, and the movies didn't help. <laughs> the movies should have helped if we had like yeah. used them as opportunities. Like, There's a Black Panther movie. Why isn't Black Panther everywhere? Why aren't copies of Black Panther everywhere? I should not be able to walk down the street without someone shoving a copy of right. Black Panther yeah. in my face. You know, it's going to be the biggest movie of the fucking year. And I, I don't know where the, mm-hmm. where's yeah. the synergy, you know? Um, you meant, you mentioned working in marketing in addition to, you know, freelancing comics, you, you know, I was looking through sort of what you've got actively coming out that right now, but you know, besides eternity girl, you've got transformers versus visionaries, you know, uh, you're still working on Ricky, Rick and Morty stuff for Oni. What is your time management like? Um, I basically just write for about two hours a day. Mm-hmm. I get up in the morning and on my way, because I live in New York City, I take the subway to work. And I have a single seat trip that takes me about an hour. So I get on really early on. Like By the time I get on the train, there's like not really anybody on it. I find a little corner, tuck myself into it, pull out my laptop, and I write. Um, I will basically do a script a week. I'll break it each script down into one day for outlining and then four days for writing. And then I get whatever a quarter of the book is at least done each day. Um, yeah. I mean, it's pretty simple. Like it's just a matter of making sure I'm, I'm, I'm putting the time in. Um, most of the mental labor uh, is done by the time I get to that point. Like, the hard part is plotting for me. That's my, the, the part that I was find the most difficult is, is like big picture plotting. Mm-hmm. Um, but like breaking down an issue and writing an individual page, that's, that's in a lot of ways, that's the simplest, most interesting part. So I can get into that really easily. Um, but yeah, it's just a matter of, it's just a matter of finding the time and treating comics like it's a job because that's what it is. Like you've got stuff that's got to get done. So you get mm-hmm. it done. <laughs> 
that uh, my next Rick and Morty thing, though, that's going to be a challenge because that's a single 30-page script. Mm-hmm. Um, so doing that thing in four days is, is uh, going to be rough. So I actually had to do my – I had to, like, like schedule in time to, to do my plot breakdowns, like, last week. Just that by the time I get to the book, because it's a 30-pager, I have mm-hmm. to um, – so I at least have, like, the full five days to script the damn thing. That's one of the quarterly specials that they're doing, right? Um, I don't know about the release schedule for it. It's the Rick and Morty Prevent- Presents, I guess. It's quarterly. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's gonna be a that's uh that's gonna be a fun, fun project. I'm really happy with where my story is going. Do you like playing with the license stuff? Uh, obviously, you know between Rick and Morty and and, and Transformers uh, versus Visionaries, you know you've got you've got two out right now um i mean i i do like being able to play in someone else's playground it's not necessarily like that i like licenses um but Mm -hmm. i like the freedom that comes from not having to invent the world because it means you get to just invent the story like that's what writers who write about the real world get to do they don't have to worry about inventing the world because the world exists like they're just drawing from things that are actually out and about and so when you're writing if you're writing um rick and morty you're just fucking writing rick and morty you know, like mm-hmm. Rick, Rick's there. He's got his personality. Morty's there. He's got his personality. Their dynamic exists. The kinds of stories they do are a thing. There's an established tone. And you get to try your hand at like working in this really different way that I found really um, satisfying. Um, and honestly, Rick and Morty is just a serious blast to write. They're, uh, they're, the dynamic, just kind of nailing Rick's voice is, is very difficult. And uh, that's a challenge I've really enjoyed. Um, with your with your black mask work with uh, Quantum Teens Are Go and with Kim and Kim, uh, you've written stories with transgender leads, and obviously you've been very vocal about the importance of queer representation in comics. Um, is that part of you know? Is that part of your plan? Uh, you know, with your DC material, you know, is that something you've talked about with with editorial? Um, how to put it? I don't make a point of doing like queer content i do make a point of including queer characters um so there's not like it's not for me um obviously queer interpretation is something that i've you know as you said i have been extremely vocal about um i'm a, a massive proponent of um and to that extent i think that people think that the work that i do is political in a way that I don't believe it is. Um, none of my stuff is like statement work. I'm never setting out to create the first queer blah, blah, blah. Um, the first trans blah, blah, blah. I just kind of want to do stories with people in them who reflect some of my experiences in the world. Um, so to the extent that I do that in my work, I just kind of want everything to feel like nothing's being shoehorned in. Um, so to the extent that I'm involving DC editorial in that, with my future work, um, there's a trans character in Eternity Girl. I'm not sure her being trans has come up yet at any point. Um, and it was discussed with Jamie fairly early on in the process, and that was kind of the end of it. I just kind of said, I sent along my character profiles, and I mentioned that this character is trans, and there was no comment. Like, there was not even a conversation about it, um, because that's not what the book's about. And I always try to mm-hmm. focus on what my book is about and not on... <clears throat> the fact that I have queer people in it. Um, 
and like, can I get that I sort of invite this conversation because I love to talk about this kind of stuff because I think it's really important. Um, but the way I do it in my work is that I want the queer characters to just be characters who are realistically queer and not like characters that I've created with for, for like the point of creating a character like that, you know? Yeah, no, absolutely. Yeah. You're very active on social media with fellow creators, with friends, with fans. On the whole, how would you say the atmosphere is for you online? Um, <laughs> complicated. Um, I have done quite a lot to sort of, sort of shut the abusive voices, you know, out of my social media experience. So it's a lot better mm -hmm. than it used to be. There was it was pretty touch and go for for a while there. Um, mm -hmm. I used to, prior to setting up a blockchain, which I don't like, I hate that thing. Um, but I was like waking up every day to like, your talentless trans deserves to be murdered in the streets. And you know, that gets old quick. Um, so I just didn't want to hear it anymore. And so since I, uh, you know, set up the blockchain, um, it's been much more pleasant. I don't see that stuff unless I go looking for it, which I don't often do, as you can imagine. Um, you don't need that stuff in your head. <clears throat> um, the thing that's like frustrating is you get a lot of people who get upset that we run blockchains and I get it. I do because it, you are, if you know, it does mean you are getting blocked for something that someone else did, you know, but right. at, at some point you have, we have to be able to look at the big picture and be able to say, well, what's the easiest way to filter out these kinds of people you know, a priori, a priori, you know? Um, right. And the people who get, who get like offended, I'm like, you guys don't actually have like a right to my Twitter account. It's not an official marketing organ of Marvel comics or DC comics or anything. It's just me talking about shit I do. Um, I don't think that like DC marketing would ever do a tweet about how I made out with a replica human skull the other day. Like that's, that's just, that's all mags. You know, and like, yeah. <laughs> nobody, you, I don't, I don't have to share that with anybody. I don't want to share it with. And there's a lot of people who are participating in a community um, that encourages harassment. And I, um, I don't need that. You know, I, if, if that's the sort of situation that you want to find yourself in, cool. You've made a choice about whether or not I want to listen to you. Now, some people definitely do live to argue and to, you know, to be honest, I mean, there's, you know, first of all, it's, it's self-care to get all these people out of your timeline. And second of all, you know, you know, you're marketing, you're marketing yourself, like you said, you know, so do you want to market yourself as somebody who's spending, you know, huge chunks of time on Twitter arguing with, you know, people or, or do you want your, you know, the best version of yourself to shine through. Yeah. And the best person version of myself makes out with replica human skulls. Um, yeah. It's the I, best version of a lot of people to be quiet. <laughs> yeah. <honest>. I don't, <laughs> I, I got sick of those arguments. I got sick of, I got sick of feeling bad. I got sick of being angry all the time. Um, this has been a really rough year. Um, by, which I mean, since January 20th, 2017, I can't believe it's only been, you know, but it's been, it's been rough. Um, especially for, you know, both lefties like me and queer people like me. It's been really frustrating. And the trolls have been out in force. 
and I got really nasty with a lot of people and I don't want to do that anymore. Um, so I'm not going to have those fights. Yeah. In our, in our first episode, we kind of went down the, the comics gate rabbit hole and ugh, Jesus. But it, yeah, oh, it's, it just, it's what, a, than, what a ridiculous than, bunch of people. It's worse than you know. It's worse than you know. Yeah, I, I, I just I read the list they put out, and I just heavy deep sighing and, and that awesome and list of amazing people who should absolutely be supporting every Wednesday. Exactly. <laughs> uh, but anyway, um, onto onto happier and and, and other things. Uh, I want to make sure that you know we're we're promoting. Uh, everything you've got that's out right now. So I've got a little list of plugs here, but please add more if I'm missing any. Uh, Eternity Girl comes out March 14th from DC. Uh, Transformers versus Visionaries for IDW is ongoing. Uh, Quantum Teens or Go is now. Transformers versus Visionaries is a mini series that will be ending on issue five. Just clarifying that. Aha. Yes. Okay. Um, thank you. Uh, Quantum Teens or Go is available in trade from Black Mask. And uh, you're you're uh, and look for your stuff in uh, Rick and Morty from Oni. Ah, so yeah, there's out? more. Yes, there's more. Ooh, um, okay. I, let's. I'm looking at my list of things that I've got, and I'm trying to see what can I talk about. Um, I think the only thing that's announced formally is I'm doing um, a book called Vagrant Queen at Vault, which I've been describing as Star Wars if it was directed by the Coen Brothers. That's a six issue mini. Um. I have two more books coming out from Black Mass this year. Um, one of those should be dropping in June. The other should be dropping in October. And one of those might be a Kim and Kim book. I don't know. It might be. <laughs> that's what I've been hearing. Um, and okay. I have, I guess that's all I can talk about right now. Okay. Uh, cool. There should, there's, more that, there's more that's coming out this year that I'm not really sure at the, the, the announcement plan. Um, is for that, but yeah, I'm gonna have a book out every month this year. That's awesome. Yeah, it's the first time that's ever happened. <laughs> that is amazing. Um, Vault, uh, they're 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 kind of up and coming, right? Yeah, they're how, great. How, they're fantastic. It's been an absolute pleasure working with them. They're really organized, um, and everybody there is clearly just really genuinely excited about comics and about the work that that my team is doing anyway. Um, and they're really flexible. I picked, I sold them a five issue series. Mm-hmm. after writing issue three, I was like, I need one more issue. And they were like, oh, fine. And they gave me that issue. <laughs> like they, they, they gave me the issue that I felt, I explained, I was like, I was like, but I was like, show, seeing where we are in this story, you know, mm-hmm. like I want some time to slow this down a little bit um, to really like let this weird relationship that's going on sort of come into a really sharp focus. Um, mm-hmm. and God bless them. They gave it to me. Hope they don't regret it. Uh, it, it and that's the, the star Wars Coen brothers, uh, one you mentioned. Yeah. Cool. Who's that? Yeah. It tells the story of a, uh, of a, a deposed queen in space. Um, you know, who like the, the revolutionary government is always trying to chase her down and kill mm-hmm. her. And then, um, she was overthrown when she was like 10. So she's been on the run for like 15 years. And a few years ago, her mom vanished. Um, her mom was like captured. And so then this guy comes up to her and he's like, Hey, I know where your mom is. She's deep in uh, the kingdom that you used to rule. So we have to go back. Uh, that's awesome. Uh, who's the artist on that? Jason Smith. It's his, as far as I know, it's going to be his first like um, direct market published work. Cool. Awesome. Um, did you- 
we've uh, he and I have been working together in some form or another since 2014 mm-hmm. um, for a lot of my like some of my like self pub stuff. But so I'm really glad to sort of like sort of bring him into sort of the commercial side of things. Awesome. Um, did you did you mention the name of that book? Vagrant Queen. Vagrant Queen. Awesome. Okay. Um, well, I think that covers uh, that covers everything, uh, Magdalene. I really appreciate you uh, joining me here on the podcast. Oh, thank you for having me. I had a great time. That's it for this week's show. Be sure to check out WMQComics.com because we've got some pretty cool projects going on right now. We just started our Arch Madness tournament bracket, in which we pit different versions of Archie, Betty, Jughead, and Veronica against each other via Twitter poll. So far, Classic Archie has eliminated his counterpart from the Afterlife with Archie Zombie Apocalypse series, and the modern version of Reggie Mantle has taken out KJ Appa's live-action Archie from TV's Riverdale. We're also keeping a rolling ranking of all of Marvel's fresh start books as they're announced, and we curated a Twitter feed of everyone who went to this past weekend's Emerald City Comic Con in Seattle. Coming up on the podcast in the next couple weeks, we'll be talking to Ian Flynn, who's writing a number of books for Archie, including co-writing the main Archie title with Mark Wade, and is about to launch a new Sonic the Hedgehog series over at IDW, a character he's been writing across media for more than a decade. Until then, you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote, and for more great comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, check out WMQComics.com and the WMQ Comics Facebook and Twitter pages. Bye for now.